Okay, so uh, we're doing our medical ethics issue, and I thought I would like to talk about abortion today, because I don't know if you follow the, uh, the newspapers uh, or the uh, whatever is the reports, but this is really, really, really interesting. And, and uh, I mean, I, again, I, I was a law professor for, for many years, so, so particularly for me, the most interesting part is, is maybe the less important part, and that's the leak from the Supreme Court. This is uh, actually... Uh, totally unparalleled. This has never, never, never happened that a draft opinion, that when the Supreme Court is discussing something, a draft opinion, the whole thing, Mamish gets leaked. How this, does that do? Do we know how that happened? Like what, well, what happened? Well, what happened obviously was, but I'll give, you, I'll give you two different interpretations of what happened. But what happened was, uh, in all probability, a clerk who works for one of the judges leaked it, just gave it to a reporter. Now, the question is, why would they do that? So here, listen to the two explanations. One explanation is that it was a liberal clerk who was very, very upset that the Supreme Court is gonna take away the right of abortion, so he or she thought, if I leak it to the press, the uproar, which it is, is gonna be so strong that uh, they're gonna have to you know, change their mind. But that's not how the court works. That's not how the court works. The truth of the matter is that's not a winning strategy. Now, there's another opinion that says exactly the opposite, because this is 5-4, 5-4. So uh, obviously, not, uh, the truth is there are six conservative justices on the Supreme Court, so why isn't it 6-3? Because my classmate, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, we know uh, John Roberts doesn't want, John Roberts is a conservative guy. Uh, he's my classmate. <laughs> but my mother always used to tell me, why don't you call him up, ask him you know, <laughs> <laughs> I should have go out for lunch with him or something. But anyway, I, did, I didn't know him, though, but he, but he was my classmate. But, um, but John Roberts, see, this opinion was written, I mean, I'll tell you a little Supreme Court stuff, forgive me, it's not the Torah per se. Uh, the, the author of this uh, draft opinion is a guy, Samuel Alito. Alito is a real, 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 real conservative. So essentially, he just writes, Roe versus Wade was stupid, it never should have been, it was wrong, it was foolish, and Baruch Hashem, you know, we're going to go back to the way things ought to be. Roberts doesn't like opinions like that because he says it causes too much machlokas. So Roberts is kind of a wishy-washy guy. So Roberts did not join this opinion, and Roberts would probably write another opinion that says, eh, we'll go with Roe versus Wade, but we'll just, you know, death by a thousand cuts. We'll make little distinctions here and there. So the theory is Roberts just was trying to win over one of the five judges to go to him, and that would collapse Alito's opinion. So uh, a conservative clerk may have leaked it because once five judges are on record, they can't change their mind now because it looks like they're giving in to pressure. So there's a whole uh, kind of reverse psychology idea that this was leaked by a conservative so that the five who voted against Roe versus Wade uh, would, could not change their mind. So I, I don't know. Uh, the one thing I'm pretty sure is, some people say that one of the ju justices leaked it. I, I don't think so. I really don't think so. It came from, uh, came from a clerk. Now, what's going to happen to this clerk? They're, they're going to find out who did it. Uh, they're going to really investigate. So my first feeling was uh, this, this clerk's legal career is over. They, he, may be, he or she may be criminally prosecuted, but even if not... I'm saying huh? that's a huge breach, isn't it? Like it is a huge breach. So their legal career is, is, is their legal <laughs> career is over as a lawyer, yeah. and they may uh, they may even be prosecuted and go to jail. It's possible. It's possible. Uh, on the other hand, I thought about it again, and I said, you know, if the public looks at this person as a big hero, 
they may get a big job on TV. Maybe maybe they'll be disbarred as a lawyer, but you know they'll get a few million dollars as a commentator at yeah. a talk show. Well, so, maybe it's like a whistleblower, right? Huh? Like they probably see themselves as a whistleblower. Yeah, but a whistleblower, a whistleblower is when you when you talk about something illegal. I mean, the Supreme Court has the right to, to adjudicate. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing illegal in uh, in them deciding a case. Yeah, but they look at themselves like a whistleblower, but okay. So I thought, so people uh, want to know a lot. Uh, again, I mean, I, I'm getting all sorts of questions about abortion. I mean, I've talked about it a lot of times. I probably even talked about it here. I don't remember. But yeah. just to go over briefly, Bikitzer, uh, what, what the basic uh, ideas are uh, about, uh, about abortion. Um, the first thing to know is this. You know, uh, we have a difference between non-Jewish abortion and Jewish abortion. Now... First of all, understand what I mean. I don't mean non-Jewish babies versus Jewish babies. People make a lot of mistakes there. I mean non-Jewish abortionists versus Jewish abortionists, meaning it makes no difference who the mother or the baby is. But the question is, who's doing the abortion? A guy or a Jew? Okay, not who the baby is or who the mother is. Now, the issue here is that under uh, non-Jews are obligated under the Sheva Mitzvah Spenei Noach, right? They're called the Noachite laws. Jews are obligated by the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah. Now, the Gemara in Sanhedrin says if a non-Jew commits an abortion, if a non-Jew terminates a pregnancy, the non-Jew is chay of Misa, the non-Jew is guilty of the death penalty because it is treated as murder under the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. Now, what is the proof that if a goy aborts a fetus, a goy is chay of Misa? Because it says in Parshas Noach, this is a Pasuk, Shofech dam ha'adam bi'adam. So literally, that means he who spills the blood of a person within a person, his blood shall be shed, his blood shall be spilled. So note the circumlocution, note the phrase. Shofech dam ha'adam adam Adam bi adam. A person in a person. What is a person in a person? Well, right? means a fetus. So the Torah is actually telling you that uh, under the Sheva Mitzvah Vene Noach, a guy who kills a baby, an unborn, an unborn baby, mm-hmm. is Chayav Misa, death penalty. Would that define at what point a fetus becomes a person? Okay, so the, question become, right, so the question becomes, at what stage is this? Right, at what stage... Well, we'll, 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 we'll also apply to a Jew, but let's take, since we're talking about Noachites, let's talk about the Noachite law first. So some uh, shitos have a view that uh, the Gemara says in a number of places that any embryo that is less than 40 days from conception uh, is considered to be mere water. It does not yet have enough development to be treated as a human being. So as a result, uh, many opinions do say abortion is permitted. Now that's not a very long, uh, large window, but abortion is permitted within 40 days of conception. 
Now the truth is, most of the time a woman does not know she's pregnant within 40 days, but this would justify, for example, things like the morning after pill. Truth is, well, the morning after might be much anyway, but, but if you hold abortion within 40 is okay, then the morning after pill would certainly be, be permitted. Yeah. But if somebody keeps like this 40 day, then even without any reason, they could just do abortion? According, to some, according to some opinions, without any reason at all, okay. it's totally permitted. Now, I do want to point out that Ramosha Feinstein disagreed with that because he said that uh, just because it's less than 40 days and it's not a full human being, there is still a potential to develop into life. So, you, you know, that would make it, that would be sinful to terminate a potential. And I, I believe, I don't want to say for sure, but I believe the Rebbe himself in a letter uh, said also that he did not accept the 40-day rationale. So the way halacha comes out, lemaisa, I'll just give you a bottom line in this, uh, is that we don't permit abortion for any reason, less than, even less than 40 days. But if it's a rape or incest situation, even though we will not permit you know, abortion at a later stage, but we might combine it with less than 40 days, or if, for example, there's some genetic testing, very early genetic testing, that indicates a severe abnormality, uh, you can use the 40-day rule uh, when you combine it with other extenuating circumstances. Um, so you are correct that there is some discussion about how early, but I have to say, once you're after 40 days, which is pretty early, that's way before the first trimester, uh, then Halacha says that for a non-Jew to abort a fetus is treated as murder and chayiv uh, misa. Now, for a Jew to perform an abortion is also a sin. It is a sin. It's an avera. And the same 40-day rule would apply to a Jew as well. But, interestingly enough, it is not a capital crime. Meaning to say, if a Jew murders a born person, that's a capital crime. We don't give capital punishment today, but it is a capital crime. If a Jew, however, kills an unborn baby, it is not a chi of misa. It is not a capital crime. It's a sin, and it's not a chi of misa. So it is a capital crime for non-Jews. For non-Jews, it is. So that's a very curious distinction, that the severity of the crime is greater for non-Jews under the Noahide Code than it is for Jews. And uh, the proof of this is because the Torah says when uh, people are fighting and they punch a pregnant woman in the belly and she miscarries, God forbid, so the Torah says the punishment for causing a miscarriage is financial compensation, mm -hmm. implying that it's not a capital crime. If it would be a capital crime, that would be the punishment. It wouldn't be financial. Right? Okay. Um, why, are they not, why are we not obligated to, like, why is that not considered murder for Jewish people? I didn't hear you. Why is abortion not considered murder? Yeah, so abortion is not considered murder because Rashi says, until a child is born, it is not treated as a complete life. Now, the problem with that is, well, then how come it's treated as a complete life? 
for if a non-Jew does it. I mean, it's the same baby, right? Uh, in other words, how do you look at it? If you say a fetus is a human being, then it ought to be murder for a Jew. And if you say the fetus is not a human being until it's born, then it ought not to be murder for a guy. Right? It's a very good question. That's why you know people say, oh, according to Judaism, is a fetus a human being? Or is a fetus not a human being? I mean, you can't even answer that question. What are you going to say? Well, if a guy uh, does the abortion, the fetus is a human being. I mean, that, that, that doesn't make sense even as a statement. If a Jew does the abortion, the fetus is not a human being. I mean, the fetus's status as a human being should not depend on who is the one who kills it. Okay, so that's, I'm going to leave it. It's a very excellent question. But uh, for our purposes for now, let's just be aware of the distinction. But now... This doesn't mean, again, God forbid, do not walk out of here, and I'm sure you won't, uh, saying, oh, Judaism is lenient on abortion. Abortion is a very, very serious sin. It happens to be, it's not a chi of misa sin, but it's still a very, very serious avera. Uh, it causes the shechina to leave Klal Yisrael. Uh, we are also told it also prevents the coming of Mashiach, because Mashiach cannot come till all the neshamos have been born, and when one does an abortion, one is preventing a neshama from being born, uh, that could actually hold back the ge'ula from coming. Yeah. Um, doesn't the maka of nefesh, like two men are fighting situation, doesn't that seem like it's an accident? Yes, that's a very excellent question. Now, your question is, what's the proof that it's not a chi of misa? Maybe if he did it on purpose, it is a chi of misa. But the reason why that Maka Nefesh is, is, is uh, financial is because they didn't intend to hit her. She just tried to stop the fight in the middle. Very, very excellent question. Uh, but the answer is, I'm going I'm, I'm to give you an answer on the halacha itself you're, you're going to say is going to be difficult. But the halacha basically is that any activity for which there would be a death penalty if you did it on purpose does not have financial liability even if you did it accidentally, meaning... The fact that at least accidentally you only pay money rather than uh, anything worse means that even on purpose you, you, would, you would only pay money because if there would be a death penalty on purpose, yeah. there would be no financial liability even by accident. Go, uh, there would be no punishment. That, that, that's the halacha, that any capital crime does not carry financial liability even when it's done bishogek inadvertently. Uh, that would mean, for example, if you shoot somebody uh, and you kill them, you do not have to pay the cleaning bill uh, for the blood that's on, uh, on the floor, on the carpet, or whatever it is. That's a general rule that capital crimes do not carry financial liability. I mean, again, this, this could be extreme. I mean, the Gemara has really extreme cases. I mean, let's assume you set fire to a house and you kill somebody in the house. Uh, you don't have to pay for the burning down the house <laughs> because well well so, so if you were warned you would get killed but, but if you weren't warned you're not going to get killed either so you could walk away I mean Hashem will punish you but you could walk away with no punishment at all <laughs> you can walk away with no punishment at all because you did a capital crime even though they're not going to be able to kill you because the witnesses didn't warn you or or whatever 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 it was why but why is it not considered murder like well also they also are not allowed to murder no, no, that's true. So, so Rashi explains that uh, from the perspective of Jewish law, uh, an unborn fetus is a potential life. It is not an actual life. 
and therefore it's not murder yet. It's not murder, it's the destruction of a potential life that could come out. I mean, that's the idea, that's what Rashi says. But you'll, you'll see how uh, this will turn into some very interesting practical differences. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, you, know, you, were, you were talking about terrorists before. Uh, let's imagine that you have um, you know, an abortion doctor, a guy that does abortions. And you know, some fundamental Christians, fundamentalist Christians, have waited in parking lots of, of hospitals, and they've actually killed these abortion doctors uh, on the way, uh, on the, when they're going to the hospital, because they claim that the abortion doctor is a rodef. He's like someone who's going to murder. And, so and uh, you're allowed to kill a rodef to save a baby. I mean, for example, if somebody were, were going to kill a person, you could shoot them, right? That's the halacha of rodef. So the question would be, can you kill an abortion doctor by invoking the laws of rodef? Now, Lemaisa, I have to say, under the secular law of the United States and of Israel and most uh, Western countries, I think all Western countries, uh, if you killed an abortion doctor, you would go to jail or, you know, capital punishment, whatever it would be, because abortion is legal. But let's put that aside. Don't report me. Uh, let's imagine we were simply analyzing it halakhically. Can I kill a person who is about to perform an abortion on the grounds that they are a rodef, I am protecting an innocent baby from being murdered. So based on what we just said, you'd have a very curious distinction that I will admit does not make a lot of sense to me, but this is where it seems to come out. That is, if the abortion doctor is Jewish, you might not be able to kill him because since in the eyes of Jewish law, Abortion is a sin, but it's not murder. It's not a capital crime. You can only invoke rodef if somebody's a murderer. In other words, I can't kill a person to prevent him from desecrating Shabbos. Right? I can't. If somebody's going into a treif restaurant, I can't kill him to prevent him from eating treif. Rodef is a special rule that I can kill somebody to prevent him from committing murder. But if in the eyes of halacha this is not murder, then he cannot be a rodef. Masha'enkain, if he's a non-Jewish doctor, since in the eyes of the Noahide law it is considered to be murder, then I would be able to call him a rodev. So, now this is a very, again, I, I mean, I am saying this is a very strange halacha. So, I have a gun, and the abortion doctor, uh, this is a new, uh, a new meaning to the Shaliach's question, are you Jewish, right? <laughs> a, new, a new reason to ask it, right? So the doctor, right, the doctor, right, uh, right, the doctor gets out of the car and says, "Are you Jewish?" So he says, "No, I worked for already." Oh, good. <laughs> no, but that'll save his life. That'll save. Him. He, he says, "If he's Jewish, you know, he gets to live. If he's not Jewish, he might get killed." Now, again, I. I my, my, my instinct tells me this cannot possibly be the halacha because it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But in lambdas, in theory, you could see where this might be a, a pshara, this might be an interesting uh, compromise. Okay, but be it as it may, uh, we shouldn't obscure the fact that both for Jews and for non-Jews, abortion is a sin, and we, and we have a machlokas, does it apply at the early stage of pre-40 days and the like? But once it's, 40, once it's after 40 days, 
we do have um, this law of abortion, both for non-Jews and for Jews. Now, let's go further. Are there exceptions? So there's one well-known exception. That is, it is permitted to abort if the birth of the baby or the continuation of the pregnancy is going to endanger the mother's life. That is a Mishnah, and there's no machlokas about that whatsoever, that if the continuation of the pregnancy is going to endanger the mother's life, we terminate the pregnancy. And this is even true at nine months, uh, you know, no matter how far advanced the pregnancy is. And this is the same for Jews and non-Jews. Jews and non-Jews. The mother's life has priority. Now, here's a very, very interesting question. Now, people say, well, that's obvious. Uh, the mother's life has priority, pikuach nefesh. The truth of the matter is, this is not at all simple. We know that if, a go- if, a, if an oppressor goes over to you and says, kill this person or I'll kill you, you're allowed to kill the oppressor because they're threatening your life, but you're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to kill an innocent person to save your life. And the reason is, you can't use pikuach nefesh. If the guy says to me, desecrate Shabbos or I'll kill you, I desecrate Shabbos. Yeah? If the guy says, eat chazer or I'll kill you, I eat chazer. Because preserving my life is more important than Shabbos and more important than chazer. If the guy says, worship idols or I'll kill you, I have to give up my life because not worshiping Avodah is more important. Okay. But by murder, if the guy says to you, murder that person or I'll kill you, you can't say, my pikuach nefesh allows me to murder another person. Because who says, the famous phrase, that your blood is any better than that person's blood? What do you say? Because I have to preserve my life, I can take your life. Maybe your life is better. They always translate it, who says uh, your blood is sweeter. The word is sumak. Sumak is redder, actually. So, so, the, so the, the literal translation of the rule is, who says your blood is more redder than his blood? And by the way, what if I say, well, I know I'm better. <laughs> what, what, what if, for example, uh, the person, tell, the guy tells me, kill that drunken, alcoholic, drug addict, or I'll kill you. So, I might be reasonably confident, you might be reasonably confident that, you know, your life is more worthwhile. What if you're the Gadol Hador? What if you're the Tzaddik of the generation? Of course, the Tzaddik might be so humble that you'll always think, but you know, and that person is like the Russia of the door. You know, it's an amazing thing. You can't make a job. Hashem does not allow you, no matter how obvious it looks to you, and no matter how obvious it may look to everybody, you cannot kill a person to save your life. You can't even kill a person to save a hundred lives, a million lives. So, question is, why am I allowed to kill the baby the unborn baby, to save the mother's life. Right? The baby is innocent, so we should let the baby be born. If that kills the mother, that kills the mother. But what is our heter to kill mother to save baby? Right? The rule should be, this is the halachic uh, rule, ein dochen nefesh 
nefesh. We don't destroy one life to save another life because we're not allowed to say whose life is, is better. We have to let nature take its course, so to speak. Let Hashem decide. So there are two reasons that we shine him give why the mother's life has precedence over the baby's life. One reason is given by Rashi, and one reason is given by the Rambam. Rashi says, it's true that you can't take a life to save a life, because you can't judge that your life is better than their life. But a fetus is not yet, this goes back to what we said before, a fetus is not yet a full life. It hasn't been born yet. It's only a potential life. So even though we say you can't kill a life to save a life, but if something is not yet a life, it is only a potential, the actual life has preference over the potential life. And that's why the mother's life has preference, because the unborn fetus, even at nine months, is not yet a nefesh gamor, is not yet a complete life. That's what Rashi says. Rambam gives another reason. Rambam says, if the mother's life is endangered because of the baby, right, whatever it is, the baby is putting a strain on her heart or, or whatever the health reason is, the baby now becomes a rodef and the baby can be killed as a rodef. Now that's a very amazing thing. When you think of rodef, you normally think of bad people. You think of malevolent actors. You think of, uh, you know, terrorists. You think of robbers, people who take hostages. But the truth is, the law of rodef is not limited to bad actors. The law of rodef applies to anybody whose life is a threat to me. So a person could be a rodef. And I'll give you a few examples. Let's imagine, let's imagine God forbid, that you had a two-year-old who found a loaded gun. Let's say uh, the person keeps a loaded gun. I mean, obviously you gotta be careful not to let, give access to your children, but uh, the person had a loaded gun. His two-year-old brings it to the table and starts swinging around the gun. The gun could go off any second and kill somebody. Now, obviously, the first thing you do is not kill, kill the child. I mean, even, even a real rodef, if you can disable the terrorists without killing them, you have to try to do that. But let's imagine that the only way you could prevent somebody from getting shot is by killing the, God forbid, killing the baby. You're allowed to kill the baby as a rodef. The baby is a rodef. Or you may have heard this story uh, in the Holocaust of Jews that were hiding in a bunker and uh, the Germans were searching, searching the house, and they, were, they would find the Jews, if, you know, they would kill them. And uh, one of the people hiding had a baby with them, and the baby started crying. And the story goes that the mother put a blanket over the baby's mouth to mu muffle the sound, and tragically, the baby suffocated. And that was an accident. That's an awful story. But I want to make it a, wor a, a more awful story. It could very well be la halacha, they would be allowed to actually kill the baby. 
God forbid, kill the baby. Because if the baby's cries are going to give away their whereabouts and result in all of them getting killed by the Nazis, the baby's crying is a rodef. The baby's a rodef. So rodef, I'm showing you, is not limited to uh, bad people. It's not limited to intentionally wanting to harm somebody. It can apply to babies. And the Rambam is teaching us it can even apply to unborn children, that an unborn child might halachically be a rodef. And uh, that is why you're allowed to kill the baby that's endangering the mother. So we have, so you understand the two opinions here. We have Machlokas, Rashi, and the Rambam. Uh, right? Everybody says the halacha is if the mother's life is in danger, you can abort the baby, kill the baby. Machlokas is why? Because Lachari, you don't kill one person to save another. So Rashi's reason is because the uh, unborn baby is not a complete person yet. Uh, Tos, uh, the Rambam's reason is because the baby that's endangering the mother's life, even though it's not doing it with bad intention, is halakhically a rodef, and a rodef may be killed if there's no other way to prevent the innocent person um, from being harmed. Yeah? If someone is trying to kill you, you have to try to disable them without killing them? Yes, 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 yes. But, but you don't have to be too strict, meaning to say, you know, in these types of cases, if you try to take your time, you know, you're putting yourself in danger. But assuming uh, that you can do so, in fact, usually you, if you're the actual person who's being threatened, usually, you know, you have to kill the killer. But if you're talking about uh, people who are like uh, snipers, professional snipers, and they could aim and they have the time, they should aim for the leg or aim for something that would uh, disable them. In fact, once a terrorist is disabled, you cannot kill him. In fact, um, this was the famous court martial we had in Israel, was it a few years ago? It was on YouTube, everything is on video today, where a terrorist was uh, caught and tied down. Where is this? Uh, in Israel, it happened in Israel. And uh, on YouTube, there was actually a video of a soldier, a terrorist on the ground. The soldier just walked over to the terrorist, put a gun to his head, and, shot. and killed him. Now, he was then, the soldier was then put up for court-martial, etc., for a murder. Uh, now, the soldier claimed that the terrorist was reaching for a gun, which would have changed everything. So, so, so I, I can't speak about, is the soldier innocent or guilty? Because if the terrorist was reaching for a gun, then he's still an active rodef, and he can be killed. But, but he could have stopped him by Right, right, right. Yeah, but the, so, the, so the general principle is, though, there is a general principle that if you can stop a rodef who's trying to kill you or other people in a manner that is short of actually killing them, you are obligated halakhically to use uh, less extreme means. And that also means, therefore, that once a terrorist is disabled, he's in a prison cell, or he's tied up, or he's under custody control, you're not allowed to kill him. At that point, the only people who could kill him would be a court or a basin that would paskin that he's high of Misa. In other words, Rodef is not about punishment. This is, this is critical. The law of Rodef is not punishing people for the bad things they did. It's to prevent them from further harm. So once the Rodef did his action, and you got him, 
uh, the, the issue is punishment. Punishment has to be through a court or a basement. It cannot be through private people. A private person could, could prevent, try to prevent the murders, but he cannot punish murders that already happened. Yeah. Um, nowadays, when we don't have the Sanhedrin, so we Yeah, so th this is a fascinating question generally, meaning uh, it's true that we don't have a Sanhedrin and therefore the laws of death penalty for Shabbos and for adultery and for Avodah uh, none of this can apply today. So here's the question. According to Halacha, Halacha, does a secular court, whether it's an Israeli court or an American court, does it have the right to impose capital punishment? Right? So this is an interesting issue. The Hassam Sofer actually paskins that Bisman Hazer, in the absence of a Sanhedrin, uh, there is no court that has the right to impose capital punishment. So capital punishment cannot be imposed. But Rav Yaakov Emden argues, Rav Yaakov Emden says the following, and listen to this. Rav Yaakov Emden says that there is, under the Sheva Mitzvahs of Noach, a mitzvah called dinim. This is the seventh one. And dinim means to establish a court system that will punish actions that are destructive to society. And Rav Yaakov Emden understands that under the Noahide Code, a society can even impose death penalties for violent ac actions like uh, murder and the like. And Rav Yaakov Emden suggests that even a Jewish court would be able to do so, acting under the Noahide laws, meaning Jewish courts can borrow from Noahide authority. So according to that, according to Rav Yaakov Emden, uh, the state of Israel would have the right, now I'm not saying it's right or wrong, that's a separate debate, but they would have the right to impose death penalties for violent crimes like murder or, or terrorism. I'm a by the reasoning. Why is there disagreement? Well, like, why is there one opinion that yes, you can and one well, well, the reason why there's disagreement is this. You know, the, the Torah mm -hmm. has all sorts of conditions for a death penalty, and these conditions Isn't largely... Only for Sanhedrin? Yeah, Sanhedrin, that's what I'm saying. Uh, so the question is, the Torah said you need a Sanhedrin, a special type of court, special ordination, special witnesses, eyewitnesses. Now, but we don't... I understand. So, so the, well, 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 the rest of the world does what the rest of the world wants to do, but the question is, what does Judaism say the rest of the world is supposed to do? That's the question. I mean, they'll do what they do anyway, but what does Judaism say uh, that they're supposed to do? So since the rest of the world is governed by... Yeah, I have to clarify something. Since the rest of the world is governed by Noahide law, under Noahide law, Capital punishment does not require all of these different issues. You don't need eyewitnesses. You can use circumstantial evidence. You don't need warning, etc. Yeah, I, I, actually, I need, I need to step back a little bit. I, I misstated something. So vis-a-vis non-Jews, there is no question that the Noahide Code will allow capital punishment. That's not a machlokas. The machlokas, yeah, I misstated. The machlokas, the Rizam Sofer and Rav Yaakov Emden, is whether the Noahide law would give them power over Jewish people. Now, that's the Machlokas. The Hassam Sofer is saying that a non-Jewish court does not have capital punishment authority over a Jew. But why would they treat a Jew any differently? 
Well, they won't. But, 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 but they, yeah, you're right. I mean, the guy in mind asking this question, but, but the, the issue is, now let, let me tell you the exact issue of the Chazam Sofer. The issue would be this. A Jew was arrested and sentenced to die. I am able to bribe the jailer to let him go. Is it permitted for me to bribe the jailer to get him out of jail, to save him from a death sentence? So here's what the Hassam Sofer says. Since in the eyes of Halacha, the non-Jewish court had no authority to impose death on a Jew, it is not a halachically valid death sentence. If it's not a halachically valid death sentence, I'm allowed to bribe the jailer to let him out. But I thought we just said that they did. No, no, that, that's the Chassam Sofer. Oh. I mentioned two views. Oh. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says that under the Noahide Code, God gives the Noahide system jurisdiction over all people in their realm, both Jews and non-Jews, and therefore the death sentence is a valid sentence, and therefore you would not be allowed to circumvent it. Who says that? Rav Yaakov Emdin. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so I want to be clear. Uh, this is a machlokas regarding the jurisdiction, the halachic jurisdiction of non-Jewish courts over Jews. It's a halachic question. But the halachic jurisdiction of non-Jewish courts over non-Jews is 100% valid. Therefore, a Noahide court, meaning a court of a non-Jewish society, would clearly be allowed to impose a death penalty on non-Jewish terrorists and murderers. And then the question will become, well, okay, but what about a Jewish court? So the question is, can a Jewish court function, even though it's not a Sanhedrin, can it function under the umbrella of B'nai Noach Yeah, Now again, I, I know this may sound a little abstract because obviously non-Jewish societies are not asking questions of rabbis. What can they do and what they can't do? So I, I appreciate it's theoretical, but it is an interesting question to ask. How does the Torah envision the authority of non-Jewish courts to preserve society? And can a Jewish court borrow from that non-Jewish society? Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, how do we get out to this? I don't remember. Uh, anyone remind me? <laughs> well, we're talking about abortion. Yeah. The what? The? Oh, Rodeh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. So uh, Rodeh is not vigilanteism. It's very important to understand the difference. I cannot, I as an individual cannot kill a terrorist because he murdered 10 children. He has to go to court, and then the court would have the authority under the Noah. A, a Jewish court would have the authority? Well, that's what I'm saying. In other words, many would say a Jewish court could borrow the Noahide authority. In other words, well, some, people disagree. some people disagree. But Rodef for sure does not help, okay? It's very important. Uh, Rodef is not a vigilante mechanism of punishing individual people for bad things that they did. Rodef, in fact, is not a punishment idea at all. Rodef is a preventative idea. Rodef says, I can kill, if necessary, to prevent a murder from taking place. And since it is preventative, you only 
can use murder if that's the only way you can prevent it. If you can prevent it in some other way, you got to prevent it some other way. Because you're not punishing. You know, maybe the guy deserves to die, but you're not punishing him. You're preventing his harm. And that's why once he's arrested, can't do anything about it. Okay? Um, now, people make the argument, well, you know, maybe by killing this guy, I'm going to prevent another guy from being a terrorist. But you, you can't work that way. Rodeif is referring to this particular person as being a source of danger. The Chiddush of the Rambam, which is not really from the, it is from the Gemara, but the Chiddush of the Rambam is that Rodeif can even apply to an innocent fetus that's not even born because the fetus is endangering the mother's life. We'll call that the benign Rodeif or the benevolent Rodeif or the non-malevolent Rodeif, right? Two-year-old kid, the baby that starts crying, right? Uh, that's Nichlal, that's included in the principle of Rodeif, yeah. In the case of a Rodeif, how should yeah, 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 yeah. That's a very good question. Uh, you know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story from my own my own life. Not uh, it was scary at the time uh, when I was uh, living in Boston. I was in law school, so I'm walking in the street, and a guy goes over to me. He sticks a gun in my uh, chest. It looked like a gun, and he says, "Give me your money." Yeah, it's, it's pretty scary. <laughs> then he starts laughing, laughing insanely, and pulls out was like a toy pistol. And he starts laughing, joke. <laughs> you know, he's lucky I didn't have a gun because according, according to the law, halacha too, if I, if I genuinely thought my life was in danger and I killed him and it turned out it was a toy gun, uh, I am off the hook because the law of rodeif, which is halacha, and the law of self-defense, which is the secular term, is not based on an actual danger. It's based on, did you have a reason to perceive that your life was in danger? Uh, so, you know, so... <laughs> I, if it's not reasonable, if you have okay, some so, kind of extreme so, so you're right. You're, so you're right. This, this is going to be an issue. If you overreact, most of the time, I mean... In, pra- in practical life, juries have a lot of compassion for people in these situations. But uh, if you really, really overreacted um, by you know, magnifying something way beyond what was the actual case, you might find yourself uh, liable for murder, and halacha would not give you a hedger of rodef. So it's a little amorphous. Rodef has to be, I'm going to use uh, you know, vague words, there has to be a reasonable apprehension that your life or someone else's life is in danger. Okay, a reasonable fear that uh, that you're in danger or somebody else. You can also be a you know you can kill somebody who's endangering somebody else. But if it's totally unreasonable, if 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 nobody, no normal person would look at this and think this is a dangerous situation, and you overreact and you kill, uh, you might be in you might be in trouble. What if there's like a terrorist in jail and his sentence is coming is like almost over and he keeps saying how he's going to leave and he's going to... So, yeah, so there's another issue. There's another issue too, which is really an issue of proximity, meaning to say, uh, let's let's imagine you have a guy guy, uh, who's a terrorist and the terrorist says, uh, tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, you know, you you intercepted a telephone call, that tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock... I'm going to go to Ben Yehuda Street and you know shoot somebody. Okay, so the question is, and you you know you got you 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 know you obtained that phone message, you heard that phone message. 
So are you allowed to go to his house in the middle of the night and kill him? So there's another aspect of halacha that you can only kill the rodev bishas maisa, meaning when he is actively involved in doing the thing. So at the morning, right, so at the morning when he shows up and he pulls out his gun, you, you shoot him. Now I understand you're going to tell me, well, maybe that's a little late, you know, yeah, okay. But you can't just do it like uh, the night before or something like that. So that would be part of the issue there. You can arrest him. You can arrest him, yeah, for sure. For sure, you can do that, right? So that's a proximity what issue. What if he's just nice immediately? Like, let's say he's yeah. not sleeping. Let's say there's someone who's, like, let's say, like, I know that in, in certain, like, settlements, they'll have, like, an alarm going off, someone came in. Like, he's not necessarily in the middle of killing someone, but he's running in, obviously, yeah, I think if he's already involved in the action, meaning he's coming into the settlement to kill somebody, mm-hmm. uh, you can kill him before he gets to the, gets to the house. Now, again, you, if you can disable him, I mean, we still have that other rule that if you can disable him without killing him, you've got to do that. Uh, but you can disable him at that point. You don't have to wait till he actually pulls out the gun. On the other hand, if he hasn't yet left the house, you know, so we do have proximity issues. It has to be proximate to the, to the event. In fact, that's why even in the case of abortion doctor, you know, if all he did was show up at the hospital, okay, you could say as soon as he starts walking to the hospital, that's already eroded, you know, and, and the like. Uh, but that's the Rambam's point about the benign rodef, that the baby, the unborn baby, can be the rodef. And according to the Rambam, this is the heter of why you can kill the, mo- I'm sorry, kill the baby in order to save the mother. Now, let me ask you, yeah. So, if we're talking about the, the inaction part of the rodeo, yeah. we're talking about Rambam's opinion, yeah. and let's say the baby would only kill the mother while giving birth to the baby, then abortion would be allowed before giving birth? Well, well, yeah, because now the question is, how early could you do, do the abortion? I mean, could I do it if, you know... Uh, but that's also preemptive. It's preemptive, yeah. Happens. No, that's correct, but that, that's what Rodef is. Rodef is to prevent, to prevent the baby from killing the mother. You know, we can kill the baby. Well, like, if it has to be in the act. The baby's already in the act of growing. Yeah, so I would... The danger would only come in giving birth. So you're saying because the baby is not yet doing anything that's endangering the mother. That's a good question. That's a good but question. It's, but it's in the act of being born. Just I mean, the whole the whole nine months is an, is just one long birth process. Yeah. Okay, I hear you. Yeah. What's yeah? Um, Rev Yaakov Rev Yaakov Emden's like why does he think that the legal court system could administer capital punishment? Well, because like this, uh, the Tyra gives. This is for sure. The Torah for sure gives non-Jewish courts the right to impose the death penalty under the Noahide laws. That, that's for sure. The question is, does that apply to Jews? Do Noahide laws apply to Jews? Rebbe says, since the reason the Torah gives non-Jewish courts the power to impose death penalty is because that's necessary for a stable society, that could apply to any citizen of the society, Jewish or non-Jewish. In other words, the grant of authority would apply even to Jews. Yeah? Um, if the mother wants the, like, the baby to live... Right, right. So that's Mamish what I was going to say now. That, that's uh, exactly the question I wanted to raise. So very good that you thought of it. Uh, that is, 
Okay, so the halacha is very, very clear. We are allowed to abort the baby in order to save the mother, that's for sure. The question is that sometimes you have a situation where the mother can actually say, I would rather give birth to a baby and die. In fact, I'll, I'll give you an actual, these are actual tragic cases. Imagine a mother that has advanced cancer and, it is expect, and she's pregnant. She ex, uh, she's expected to die in a year. But if the baby is delivered, the stress of delivery would cause her to die much earlier. So her point is this. If you abort the baby, so I'm going to live a year. If you let the baby live, so I'll die in six months when the baby gets born, but I'll have a baby in the world. So the mother says, I would rather, you know, lose six months of my life and bring a baby into the world than abort the baby and I'm going to die in less than a year anyway. Or even if the mother would live, she might say he wants the baby more. So that's a very, very uh, interesting and tragic uh, type of, of choice. But many postkim do permit the mother to waive her rights, so to speak, that the mother has the right to go the other way around and say, I would rather die and have my baby delivered. Uh, you can call this um, altruistic volunteering. She can essentially volunteer to give her life so that her baby could, could live. According she could? Many opinions say that she could, yeah. yeah. Now that wouldn't automatically apply uh, to, to every case. I mean, this, this, this doesn't mean she could commit suicide. And this doesn't mean she could kill herself actively, but at least to say she doesn't want an abortion, so it'll be the process of birth that, that will kill her, uh, they would allow this. These cases come up. There actually actually are cases, both in halacha and in general literature, where a woman declined an abortion in order to bring a baby into the world, and she died either in childbirth or she died shortly after childbirth, but uh, it was considered to be halachically mutter. Now, let's go a little further into bikuach nefesh. So the classic case of mother's bikuach nefesh is something physical. Uh, she has cancer, uh, or the birth uh, process may induce a stroke or a heart attack, uh, things like that, where physically the stress of a pregnancy or a childbirth on the body can result in her death. What about psychological trauma? What about if she's a perfectly healthy person, she can carry a baby, the baby is not going to endanger her life, but uh, the trauma is so devastating that potentially she might be suicidal, right? She might kill herself uh, because of the stress. Now, the classic example is rape or incest. Let's imagine a, a woman, God forbid, got pregnant uh, through rape or incest. Now, in the general population, you often hear a pro-lifer say, I am against abortion unless it's rape or incest. Right? That, that's commonly said. Now, if you think about that, that kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, if you take the position that the fetus is a human being, then you shouldn't be able... I mean, can you kill a baby? Let's say a baby is born. Is someone going to say, oh, I'm going to kill this two-year-old because it's so traumatic, rape or incest, you know, you know you're not going to kill a baby that way. So here's what Halacha says. Halacha does not have something called a rape or incest exception. But Halacha does have a pikuach nefesh exception. And Halacha recognizes that in some cases it may be so psychologically devastating 
for a woman to have to carry a baby that she conceived by rape or incest, that it's a life-threatening pregnancy if, she's, uh, if she would be forced to continue. Now, this is not a one-size-fit-all. This is not saying every case of rape or incest is going to be that case. But it will say that some cases might qualify as pikuach nefesh. It depends on the woman. It depends on her resources. It depends on uh, are there adequate therapists that can help her. It depends on her understanding the options. You know, there is uh, here in Israel, also in the United States as well, um, agencies that will help uh, women place uh, these children for adoption if, if they can't, if it's too traumatic for them to raise the baby, if they don't have the resources. Uh, there's an organization in America called In Shifra's Arms that, that does a lot of good work in that. And here in uh, Israel, there's an organization called Efrat, same as the city, but it's not, uh, not the city, Efrat, which uh, really helps women either keep their babies if they want or, or give up the babies for adoption. You know, it's a funny thing. It's a little bizarre a little bit. Um, sometimes when women are traumatized by uh, unwanted pregnancies, and, you know, this is a serious problem. I don't mean to make light of it. It, it, is, it is a serious issue. And they say they have to get an abortion. They can't possibly live with uh, having a baby. They're single, whatever it is. So we bring up the idea of adoption. You know, you can place the baby for adoption. And often the woman will say, there's no way I will give my baby up for adoption. So therefore what? There's no way I'll give my baby up for adoption, therefore I'm going to get an abortion. Hmm. You know, uh, giving up a baby for adoption is a lot better than aborting the baby. I mean, adoption, the baby has a home, the baby has a life. And yet, people will often say they would rather abort than give their baby up for, for adoption. So it's a strange, strange world in that, in that particular way. You know, people say adoption is actually an act of love. You know, you're giving a child a home, you know, etc. Uh, and like, but, but again, as I say, it's, um, I, I don't mean to make light. I mean, obviously, uh, when people are traumatized, it can be life-threatening. And when it is life-threatening, halacha will allow pikuach nefesh to be considered. And I think I had mentioned at the very beginning that if it's within 40 days and it's a rape or incest, we'll often, uh, we'll often be lenient in that, uh, in, that, in that particular way. Okay, so it is important that psychological trauma is considered to be uh, a valid basis. So we talked about early abortion, we talked about mother's life in danger, we talked about psychological trauma. Let's now talk about birth defects. Uh, again, not, not the happiest uh, topic today. Uh, God forbid, uh, again, a woman is pregnant and through amniocentesis or other types of testing, uh, she discovers that uh, the baby has a serious genetic condition, uh, maybe cleft palate, it may be Down syndrome, maybe uh, Tay-Sachs. Now, obviously, these are all total, tremendously different from each other. That's the point. You know, you don't lump together a category, genetic problem. Okay? So, generally speaking, generally speaking, Genetic abnormality alone is not a justification for abortion. You know, certainly, a lot of, first of all, some things are correctable. Cleft palates, for example. 
Cleft palate is a serious, ish, uh, serious condition that requires surgical interventions. You know, so it's, not, uh, it's no picnic, but it is a correctable condition, it's a manageable condition. So things that are correctable, you certainly cannot go with abortion. Now, what about Down syndrome? Now, Down syndrome is not correct, correctable. And, and again, I'm not minimizing maybe the challenges of raising a Down syndrome baby. But once there's generally no reason to justify the abortion of a Down syndrome baby. Uh, Down syndrome children grow up, uh, they can grow up, they can live a long time. They can be reasonably happy. In fact, for Carrick, many, many say, maybe to stereotype, say that the personality tends to be very happy, very giving, very kind, and uh, they can be productive, and there's a whole range of functioning, higher functioning, lower functioning. So to abort a Down syndrome would, would, would be no justification at all. But where you get into a real difficulty is a genetic condition like Tay-Sachs. Tay-Sachs is a hard one. Because Tay-Sachs, uh, number one, there's a tremendous amount of suffering that the child does go through. Loss of function, blindness, deafness, uh, difficulty breathing. So number one, there's suffering. Number two, there's no cure right, right now. That's another consider. Uh, number three, it's a relatively short life expectancy, death before the age of, of uh, eight or nine, uh, typically. So this is not like a Down syndrome, which is just, uh, it's a disability, but a person can have a nice, happy life. Uh, this is not cleft palate that is surgically correctable. This is an uncorrectable condition of great pain and suffering. So here, uh, there is one opinion, one opinion, a minority opinion, the Tzitz Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg, who actually says, in light of the great pain and suffering that the child will go through, he does permit abortion of a Tay-Sachs fetus until the last trimester, meaning up until the end of six months, which is quite amazing. He does permit Tay-Sachs abortions, or he's not alive anymore, but he did permit Tay-Sachs abortions, but I have to say that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein uh, said that uh, this is a sinful psak. He actually used very strong language. He said, God will have to forgive uh, Rabbi Waldenberg for permitting such a thing. And I believe that most opinions will not permit, even, God forbid, a Tay-Sachs abortion. Uh, and that's why Rabbi Moshe even says that amniocentesis for these birth defects shouldn't even be undertaken because what's the purpose? What are you trying to find out? You know, in the secular world, you find out because you make abortion decisions. But uh, if halakha doesn't allow an abortion, maybe it's better not to know. And the reason why it's better not to know is because until you know, and this is a mystical idea, once you know something, God is not going to change it. God is not going to do open miracles. Until you know, Hashem mm -hmm. might manipulate things. That's why we say in Israel, Never check your bank account. <laughs> you know, if I don't know, maybe Hashem will put in some extra money uh, here and there. Once I know I got nothing there, nothing's going to, you know, it's not going to come in. Right? But there's a, there actually is a principle like this, that, that uh, until you know about something, it's shy to be changed. Once you know, 
uh, if it would require a supernatural miracle, we're not allowed to assume Hashem is going to do supernatural. Hashem can do it sometimes, but generally speaking, you don't make the assumption. Now, this is not true on a correctable thing, meaning you can't just say, I'm not going to test for cancer because until I know, maybe God will do a miracle. No, no. If it's something that can be fixed, corrected, treated, you are not allowed to close your eyes to it. That's very, very clear. You've got to get tests, you've got to get the mammogram, whatever it would be. Uh, but this is referring to something that if you find out about it, there's nothing you can do about it. So there is a logic in halacha that something I'm not able to do anything about, maybe it's better not to know. Do you see the difference? That which I'm able to do something about, I have a chiv, an obligation, I, to make I, my ishtadus. Yeah. I won't let you know, but I have, I have a just clarifying question. It's like, yeah. There are so many things where like, you can't technically do anything about it, but like, you knowing might give you time to prepare, such as either like getting support from other people who have dealt with tic or even like having a Down syndrome child, like could give you more time to look at schools, look at like yep. ways that you might want to like learn more about parenting in a way that you hadn't been planning for. I, I think that's a very legitimate point. You, you, are, you are correct and I would agree with you. And that is, uh, if I'm not getting the advanced information for an abortion decision, but I'm getting it to be able to be a better parent and to improve my situation and to give me the psychological resources of preparing myself for a potentially stressful uh, life, I, I believe that that would justify uh, no, getting that knowledge. Uh, yes. You can't necessarily choose which one, like what information you get, right? If you're no, uh, well, you, yeah, yeah, you can choose, but, but again, but you, gotta, but you gotta have a reason, meaning, meaning when, when you're asked- Right, when you, that's correct. When you're asked, uh, should we test for this, should we test for that, should we test for that, you know, you need to ask yourself, what benefit will I get from this information? And what detriment do I have if I don't know? Okay, and, and that's always going to be the central question. That's the issue with, uh, with uh, Dory Sharim. Right? I think we talked about Dory Sharim. Sharim is the uh, genetic testing service. And Dory Sharim started for Tay-Sachs. Uh, because how does it work? Uh, uh, Ashkenazi Jewish genetic disease. Um, if uh, both parents are carriers, there's a one in four chance that a child will have this disease. If only one parent is a carrier, there's no chance. You need two parents to be carriers. So Darya Sharim starts, well, I don't know if any of you have uh, done Darya Sharim, whatever it is. So you go to Darya Sharim, they do testing, and if both of you are carriers, it'll give you a notification that this shidduch is not compatible. If one of you is a carrier, they don't tell you which one, but they just say uh, compatible shidduch or you know whatever whatever. I mean, I mean today everybody can get their own test, so you could find out. But uh, when Dory Sharim started, genetic tests were not so available to everybody. So this idea that they kept results, you know, secret uh, today it's almost worthless because anybody can do their own tests uh, very very cheap. Uh, but still, technically, Dory Sharm does not reveal. Now, it started with Tay-Sachs, but now it, it has all sorts of other conditions, some of which aren't even tremendously serious, and some people will say that uh, you shouldn't test for things that are not as serious as, as Tay-Sachs, yeah. I have two questions quickly. Um, is, would that opinion about um, Tay-Sachs, would that have also applied to cystic fibrosis, for example? To, uh, yes, yes, cystic fibrosis is very similar to Tay-Sachs. Uh, Although I believe the life expectancy can be can be much longer, um, 
Now, let me just point out that Rav Moshe's point that you don't do abortions, remember, Moshe's saying you don't do abortions mm-hmm. for any of these things. The truth of the matter is, in, in secular society, people are doing abortions for sicknesses that have a latency period of, of maybe 30 or 40 years. I mean, they have, um, that's just, what's the other one? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, multiple, MS, multiple sclerosis. Now, we can do genetic screening for multiple sclerosis at a very, you know, before the baby is born. You can do amniocentesis for multiple sclerosis, but multiple sclerosis doesn't hit a person till, let's say, their 40s or 50s. So what are you going to do? You're going to abort a baby because in 50 years, they may get MS. Well, what about the 50 years of life without MS? What about the fact that in 50 years, how are you going to feel? You know, if the mom is still alive after 50 years and they discover some guy gets a Nobel Prize for finding the cure for multiple sclerosis. <laughs> oh, gee, I shouldn't have aborted that baby 50 years ago. <laughs> so, Tay-Sachs, okay, even with Tay-Sachs there could be refua, but still it's a, short, it's a very short-term life. But uh, to abort based on long-term illnesses that may take many, many years to become manifest is kind of a very, very foolish decision. Just, um, and as a follow-up with that, like I'm thinking about that uh, opinion about the abortion before um, the third trimester. Yeah. Is this based Pretty on the assumption sex. that the yeah. baby's already suffering before it's even born? Uh, no, no. His, his base, uh, well, I, I don't think he says that. He says that the suffering will be after birth. Mm. But he says, uh, he's really going with the viability. Since before uh, mm. the third trimester, the fetus cannot survive outside of the womb, so it's not a full human being, and therefore we can be make as opposed to afterwards, it's closer to infanticide, mm-hmm. murdering a okay. baby, which you, you, know, you obviously cannot murder a baby that's suffering Tay-Sachs and, and the like. Uh, that's a mercy killing. Okay, so that's kind of uh, the issue. Now, the final thing <laughs> I want to mention, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, about testing with like different intentions, <coughs> yeah. like, the, the Yerkes question, mm-hmm. um, is there is there room to say like you shouldn't test at all for these things? Because there have been times where the tests came out. Like I know I know personally people who like were told that they're gonna have a Down syndrome child, and the child in the end was not and was totally healthy. So there are times where it just causes unnecessary stress. So so again, here's the point. Uh, if it's something that if a problem is uncovered, they could fix by surgery, or whatever it is, then I think you have to test for it. But but if you're talking about problems that you can't do anything for. So really, it depends on your reaction, meaning to say, the question that was asked was, if I know the information, I could prepare myself better. That's one paradigm. Your paradigm is, if I know this information, I'm going to go crazy. It's easier for me to be talk on. So it depends on the person, meaning for some people, uh, if they're calmer and just saying, Hashem will take care of me, that's a higher madrega. That's a good madrega. But if some people are, are nervous and worried and scared, and this would at least either reassure them or at least put them in a mode where they're able to prepare themselves, even if it doesn't happen, then it would be good. So, so it very much depends on the individual. I'm, I'm not going to say it's usher, and I'm not going to say it's something you have to do. But different people will respond in different ways. The, the question you always ask yourself is, is there a benefit for me to know this, or am I better off not knowing this? You know, and each person's personality is different. So the final issue I want to raise is an interesting issue, and um, uh, you could debate this a lot. 
let's go back to the Supreme Court leak, right? So the, the draft opinion, which is only a draft, by uh, Justice Samuel Alito throws out the famous or the infamous case of Roe versus Wade. Now, I'm going to talk, talk to you as a lawyer for a few moments. What does it mean to throw out Roe versus Wade? So again, you have to understand this. Roe versus Wade said that a woman has an absolute right to an abortion. It's a constitutional right. That means no state can prohibit abortion, at least in the early trimesters. Now, Roe versus... Say again? No woman can be denied abortion rights for women? Well, at least for the uh, first trimester. And second trimester is more limited, but still there's rights even then. Now, if assuming the Supreme Court gets rid of Roe versus Wade, that doesn't mean abortion will be allowed. Can you make sure you understand that? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. It doesn't mean abortion will be forbidden. It means, Roe versus Wade says abortion has to be permitted. That's Roe versus Wade. If you get rid of Roe versus Wade, that doesn't mean abortion is forbidden. It means each state in the United States can make its own decision. Getting rid of Roe versus Wade means it is now up to 50 states to make their own decision. So you can rest assured that liberal states, like New York, New York in spite of Hasidim in New York, New York is a liberal state. California are gonna allow abortion. Even Roe versus Wade, getting rid of Roe is not gonna change the law in California at all. They're gonna allow abortion. Where, you, in fact, it could very well be, possibly, most of the United States will still allow abortion. Where you're going to see a change in the law is in southern, very Christian states, Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, those types of states. Once you knock out Roe versus Wade, they're going to pass laws that say abortion is not allowed. What were their laws before? Well, in some of the cases... Well, since, since Roe v. Wade... Right, before Roe. Yeah, they, they, they prohibited abortion, sure. Completely? Yeah. What about danger to a mother? Well, most laws did permit it if it's danger to the mother's life. It was very, I'm, I'm, I'm not aware of any abortion law that ever said even if the mother's life is in danger. In other words, so that's all. According to what we learned about the seven no laws, that would be So that would be, be good. Right that, that would be the right thing. That's correct. So here's my question. Let's imagine Roe versus Wade is out of the picture. It gets overruled, as this draft opinion said. It's going to get overruled, you know? And it'll probably come down in June, maybe another month, another two months, or whatever it will be. So I'm in a state now, and we're debating, should we pass a law that allows abortion, or should we pass a law that says all abortion is, is not allowed unless the mother's life is in danger? I'm an Orthodox Jew, uh, either I vote for the law, you know, or I vote for candidates who take a different position. What should my position be as a religious Jew as to what abortion law a state should follow? Now, I think the intuitive thing you would answer is, well, gee, uh, if halacha says abortion is not allowed unless the mother's life is in danger, 
then I ought to support a law that says abortion is not allowed unless the mother's life is in danger, because that's exactly what the halacha is. So you would see, it would seem to be the case that whatever my halachic understanding is should be the law that I want to be passed. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, I think, the simple thing you'd say. But I want to introduce an idea that may go the other way. And that is, it may be better for a Torah Jew for the government to allow abortion rather than limit abortion. I'll tell you why. When we have a halacha that says abortion is permitted only when the mother's life is in danger, who determines if the mother's life is pikuach nefesh, is in danger? This is a halachic question. It's determined by a rav and a psychologist and a doctor, right? Now, if you have a secular law that says abortion is forbidden unless the mother's life is in danger, Let's say the Rav Paskins that the mother's life is in danger, but the prosecuting attorney doesn't agree. Since it is a secular law at this point, that actually means a woman might be prosecuted for following halakha. Mm-hmm. I hope you're following me. Meaning, if the state matters, I don't want to use Hebrews to confuse it. If the state permits abortion totally, so then, I, as a, a, a from Jewish woman, follows halacha, she's going to be safe. If she doesn't get an abortion, she's okay. And if she gets an abortion, I'll peep sock. She's going to be okay. The state cannot prosecute her. But once you take even a halacha and you make it into a secular law, it's out of the hands of Rabbanim and Poskim, and it now gets interpreted by secular authorities. So paradoxically, this is a paradox, paradoxically, even if I'm against abortion, unless the mother's life is in danger, I might be in favor of a secular law that lets women make whatever decisions they want to make. Because that way, that maximizes my ability, or a woman's ability, to keep halacha. But as I say, I, I think that's a controversial thought, but it might be something to, but to think about. we also have, I mean, I'm sure that the, the, the people who decide if it's dangerous for your life, like doctors and psychologists, we have them in the from community also, and I'm sure there are from ones who would totally rather upset us. No, that's correct. I mean, uh, pe- I mean, listen, people have said, the, I mean, maybe this is theoretical, but they have listen. If you have a doctor, you have a psychologist who says the mother's life is in danger, it's very unlikely, like you're spinning hypotheticals, that the district attorney is going to say, oh, it's not, not the mother's life, my life is not in danger. Yeah. So, so the whole problem might be a made-up problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking, but in theory, it's a problem. In theory, it is a problem, but even though I'm, I'm it may not be a real problem. I, I agree. Your experience, like, yeah. do doctors generally take like, like, we talked about physical well-being, sometimes it's a little more obvious, but yeah. more like psychological trauma. Yeah. I'm not sure if, if secular doctors always take that into account, at least for abortion, in the um, same way that a rob might be able to assess. Well, I, I think they would. Maybe not a regular MD, but, but certainly a psychiatrist uh, looks into this very much so. No, no, I, I just, I've yeah. never heard, and maybe I'm just not 
Law professor hypothetical. Right, how else do they decide? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're correct. In, in, a, like you want in, a culture in a reasonable, in a reasonable world, yeah. you're not. They're not going to be second guessing what a doctor said or, 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 or the like in terms of psychological. I think you're right. I think the difference right. is: do you want to trust your Rob or do you want to tr- put your trust in the secular doctors? The, and like well, maybe it's reasonable. Yeah, but the Rob himself, the Rob himself is going to consult with doctors. By the way, let me just end with the story. I think I told this story before, but uh, it's an interesting story, a tragic story, a happy story. It's a combination of a lot of things about a uh, religious uh, high school girl who got raped by, uh, let's say it's a black man. There's a reason why I mentioned a black man because of the way the children look. And uh, you can imagine how tremendously, terribly distraught she was. Uh, and they discovered she was pregnant and carrying twins. And uh, she literally wanted to commit suicide. She wanted to kill herself. And, uh, and of course, Bikuach Nefesh would allow abortion, uh, but they, w- they met with her Moshe Feinstein. And her Moshe Feinstein spoke to her for uh, many hours. And he told her something that may sound very, very shocking. He told her, you know, the children you're carrying are Jewish. They are Jewish. They are Jewish children. And why Hashem brought these neshamas into the world in this awful, awful way. He says, we don't know. But if they are Jewish children, you could raise them to be tzaddikim and talmidei chachamim. And the story goes, now maybe these are made up stories sometimes, you know, you never know, maizim or maizim. But the story goes that uh, he convinced her, she was suicidal and he convinced her that she could see this as something Hashem is giving her, some challenge Hashem is giving her. And the story goes, I don't know if she ever did get married, but she raised these two boys. They came out looking like they were black, uh, black uh, children. And she raised them uh, to be Tzamedei uh, Chachamim, and both of them are like Tzamedei Chachamim today, you know, and, and the like. So Ramosha's point was that uh, from the greatest, darkest challenges of life, there can still be wonderful outcomes. But not everybody is tough enough for that, strong enough for that, and not everybody is like Rav Moshe that could convince somebody in a loving way. So halacha would allow abortion, but still, if you can get over the challenges and take them on, it might be worthwhile. Okay, so that's uh, kind of uh, what you need to know about abortion. Okay, all right, Be'ez Hashem, you should have a good uh, week, everybody, and Hashem should... uh, Protect Am Israel. I know we had some. We did have some. I don't know if your talk was about the events that just happened, but the terrorism in uh, Elad and other places. And uh, it's very, very difficult. You see, that's when the great Sadiqim leave the world. Uh, we become Am Israel. Israel becomes more vulnerable. So, Hashem, we should be zeicha to the Geulah Shleim of